Welcome to Within Us. This is your place for transformational tools for mind, body, and spirit. My name is Azriella Jankovic, and I'm your host. I believe that together we can build a better and kinder world. You are listening to episode 32 with special guest, Jim Farley, How to Lead with Your Heart. The number 32 has very special significance. In the Hebrew language, the word heart, lev, has the numerical value of 32. The word heart has always been an integral part of ancient Hebrew texts and ancient wisdom. The symbol for the heart and the understandings of a heart are universal across cultures, across time, and across space. My guest today has a very big heart. He is in fact someone I know very well. We are related. And at the end of this episode, I'll tell you how. I was so excited and I was so nervous about this episode. I've been re-recording and re-recording and re-recording. And finally, I decided that I'm gonna speak from the heart because as it is said, words that come from the heart enter the heart. So it is my hope that everything from this episode will enter your heart today. There are so many beautiful phrases that have the word heart in them. To gladden the heart is to make someone happy. To have your heart set on something is to be obsessed with obtaining. To have one's interests at heart, to be doing something for someone else's benefit. And that's what this episode is all about. I'm gonna go ahead and introduce Jim, our guest. You're gonna hear all about the incredible initiatives that he, as the CEO of the Leech Tag Foundation in North San Diego County, California, along with his team, are working on to advance self-sufficiency, both in his locale as well as in Jerusalem. You're gonna hear about their efforts to help the homeless, Holocaust survivors, to grow and sell organic produce at their pay-what-you-can farm stand, their hub where they bring together numerous organizations under one roof to collaborate in a co-working environment on their property. Their work is unique. It's really unlike anything I've ever seen. And even if this guest were not my relative, I would still be so honored to bring him on because there's just so much we can take away from this. The work of this foundation is really creating community. And I think right now more than ever, we are discovering the importance of our interconnectivity. And, you know, I think it's so easy to go through our daily lives and run around and run our errands and go to work and come home and just go through the motions and not realize how important those, even those little conversations are with the person behind the checkout counter at the grocery store or your bank teller or the person across the street who you see every day when you go to get the newspaper. Whatever these little little interactions are in our lives, they're really not small in the end. It's interesting because I learned that recent research has shown that these small interactions, these three-second interactions are actually what happiness is made of. There's even a name for for them, and they're called micro-connections. So I love them because they're these small moments that can make a big difference. And when we realize how important they are, and when we can align with our intention to really be present in those moments, we can make them all the more so special. I read something so funny today, and it said, for all you people who aren't huggers, you're going to be hugging the mailman and hugging 
hugging the person behind the counter in the grocery store and you're going to be hugging everyone you see after this. And I just started laughing because I think it just so speaks to the way we all want to connect. We really all want to connect with each other. And the question is, how do we do that in a society that for the most part has become over time increasingly distant? And that is some of the most inspiring work of this foundation that you're going to hear about today. They put on festivals and they have get-togethers that are so down-to-earth and so welcoming that everyone feels welcome. I mean, across the generations and people of all faiths are coming together in mutually respectful ways and it's, it's terrific. And I think that moving forward, you know, hopefully after all of this is over, we're, we're not going to come out the same. Things aren't going to go back to being the same. We're going to make things better after this is over. We're going to make things better. I saw a picture of my friend, Sarah Ashkenazi, who's a pediatrician here in Israel, and she was wearing a mask. And those were her words, really. She said, let's come out of this on the other side better. And I just looked at her and I had so much appreciation for her and for all the healthcare workers right now who are doing everything in their power to remedy this situation. And you know what? I think everyone is doing what they can each in their own way. By staying home, we're, we're doing something. You know, we're all, we're all doing something. And at the end of the episode today, I'm going to go ahead and highlight some really beautiful acts of kindness that have come to my attention over the past few weeks. So definitely stay tuned for that. I think it's so important to mastermind the situation, to really come together, even if we're coming together on the internet and exchanging information that way, to help one another and really exchange ideas and share resources and ask our friends how they're doing and what's helping them and what's not helping them and really share whatever good, wherever we can. And you know, listen, sometimes that could be giving people their space and other times it could be sharing information. But I think what's so important is us being open to learning whatever those things are and really aligning with our own heart, knowing that our heart is in the right place. When we are trying to do acts of kindness, we're trying to help or we're trying to give someone their space. So whatever that looks like, I think it's so key to really tune in with the fact that our intentions are in the right place. And this is, this is, this is unprecedented. It's just never, never happened before. So I'm hoping the episode today will be a little bit of a distraction for you, as well as an inspiration. I have been inspired by it, no doubt. So with nothing further, it is my pleasure and my honor to introduce today's guest, Jim Farley. He was an attorney for 33 years. He lives in North County, San Diego with his wife. He has two children and six grandchildren. And he's just an all around phenomenal person. He works so hard to make an inclusive community really help everyone feel included. And he has such a tremendous respect and reverence for all people. And he looks for the good in people. He really has a good eye and he has a good heart and he really leads with his heart. How about if we go ahead and get started with the mission of the foundation. Our mission statement provides that the Leach Foundation advances self-sufficiency, uh, vibrant Jewish life, and social entrepreneurship in North San Diego County. And we're based in Encinitas, California, and Jerusalem. So we see ourselves as place-based, independent, private foundation in two localities, Jerusalem, Israel, and Encinitas, 
California with a reach in Encinitas throughout the sort of north coast environment. So this mission of the foundation that you work with is threefold. Well, the mission needs to be dynamic enough to become or adjust and modify and maintain its resiliency and relevancy to a, a philanthropic legacy. Our foundation, the Leachtag Foundation, has made now grants of about 120 million, give or take. We've run a foundation with $22.5 million in expenses uh, since that 2007 date. And during that period of time, we did sort of all that grant making was done reflecting a strategic approach to what we felt were important values of the Leach Tag family reflected through the history of their philanthropic giving during life. You need to be experimental and patient with problem solving. Oftentimes, we look at the largest foundations, and, and, and I think the Gates Foundation serves as a great example of how they assemble the best professionals, frankly, that money can buy. And they put that talent to work on these intractable problems in an effort to find solutions that can matter over time. And frankly, the kind of risks that they are able to take with that kind of capital are not normally undertaken by politicians running governments where they have to be accountable to the electorate. It is also markedly different from individual giving environments. I think reflecting the question about being kind, there's a kind element to uh, charity for sure. But, you know, for Judaism, tzedakah is about justice. In the Hebrew language, there, the, the word used in place of charity is, is called tzedakah. And the literal translation of tzedakah is, as Mr. Farley said, justice. This is not about charity. This is an obligation that people at all levels of society have. So as much as someone who has hundreds of million dollars to create a foundation is uh, obligated, so too are people at the simplest levels of society because everyone has something to contribute. Here at, in Encinitas, the foundation owns a piece, incredible piece of property. It's a 67 and a half acre uh, remnant of what was an 850 acre floriculture operation once uh, very vibrant in Encinitas, the Paul Ecke Poinsettia Ranch. And we've created an environment where uh, a lot of things happen on this property, but we've used the space to importantly provide laboratory space for Judaism to sort of seek out its edges and its depths. And, and, and I would say the resource becomes important in, in the community from a, different, a number of different perspectives on a number of different levels. The Jewish farming story gives us such a wonderful tool. It's a rich tradition around this notion that in our ancient farms, we had architecture in our communities where we built into the community. Forageable, edible landscape on farms for the poor, the stranger, the widow, the orphan to, with dignity, forage for a, a meal. Imagine going across ancient Israel if you were a travel traveler knowing the law, a stranger to the community, seeing a farm you knew you could approach with in safety and a forage for a, a meal. At least that was the law. And imagine that not only did we then create the architecture of our community, we in addition had a charitable tax on top of that, where we did need to raise additional funds to fund the other needs of a community. But it was very much a sort of a hyper-local idea of communities lifting or villages lifting neighbors and giving neighbors a hand up when they needed sisters. So, so essentially on this 70-acre property that the foundation runs in San Diego, 
17 of those acres are dedicated to a farm called Coastal Roots Farm. And the model that you're implementing is really looking to the ancient Torah tradition of leaving the corners of one's field for foraging for the poor, which is a tradition in Hebrew called peah. This is the idea of leaving the corners of your field so that those in need can come and take what they need in dignity. And it's so interesting to hear that this is the model and know a little bit about what's going on with this farm. I've heard from visitors to your farm personally that what you're doing there with the farm stand is one of the most moving models of charity that they've seen. I've heard people rave about it. So I'm curious if you can tell us a little more about this farm space and, and how it's being utilized as a model for giving for justice and charity. We have a very robust and farming program with very skilled farmers managed by a wonderful farmer, Adam McCurdy. And, and he runs a great team. They are highly skilled farmers and know what they do, but they love to educate people about those skills. They run a certified organic program here at Leach Tech Commons. The vegetables are grown in a total space of about four-ish acres. The food forest, which is a perennial food forest containing 150 genotypes, including over 50 varieties of different varieties of pomegranate, are grown in about nine acres. We're now in its fourth year, so most of the food gets here harvested uh, for charity. 70% of what is grown is utilized in distributions to vulnerable communities. Farm is the only fresh produce distribution on the base, on the Marine Corps base at Camp Pendleton. And every week they uh, do a pop-up farm stand when Jewish Family Services runs their food pantry on the base. And the young families that are really, really challenged around their decisions concerning their basic needs are able to uh, get fresh produce. It is the most expensive produce in the county, meaning uh, in addition to the food that's distributed at Camp Pendleton, we do a fresh produce distribution at Vista Community Clinic, which is a community health clinic that provides services primarily to the immigrant community. And then we also provide food that's used through Community Resource Center, which is a, a local revered social service organization. And then we have a distribution to St. Andrew's Episcopal Church runs a food program and they get fresh produce from us. We also are now distributing on a weekly basis with personal deliveries to Holocaust survivors in our catchment. And that's a program that needs urgency in every community. Every community has Holocaust survivors. Many of them are very poor. They're, they're shut in. They don't get socialization. They're not getting their needs taken care of. And in addition to this program, we're the Leach State Foundation is supporting a local effort to fund the next five years uh, or the last five years, if you will, of the survivor community. And we need to do this urgently so we can uh, do this with dignity. That's the just idea in our community to honor these uh, survivors. We also run on the site a pay-what-you-can farm stand. And our best new customers are the folks that need the food and can't afford it. And the stand takes food stamps. Our neighbors who have supported uh, us like this program, and uh, many of them do better than most, pay more than most, and that helps. So this could be a very new concept, the pay-what-you-can farm stand. So what is a pay-what-you-can farm stand, and how, how does that exactly work? Well, I think there's been a lot of experimentation around these pay-what-you-can programs. We weren't by no means the first. We, we watched other programs. It's the, you learn a lot about them. It's really about having a, a low barrier of entry to the person that's most vulnerable so they feel very comfortable. We have a transaction at the farm stand where you're actually doing the transaction with an iPad 
It's a totally private transaction. We don't know who pays what. We only know at the end of the day, we can tell you the transactions where we got more and the transactions that uh, we got less. Everybody always, most always, everybody always pays something. So we're able to help a lot of families this way. The most important thing you can say about the farm and what we do, and so many wonderful things happen at the farm. You know, it's, it's a venue at which we observe all the Jewish holidays. Most of our holidays are agricultural festivals. And uh, so we do that with audacity here. Our, our last Sukkot festival, which was our seventh, was we had 12 or 1,300 people. And lots of folks across the planet have spent lots of money trying to build the vibrant faith-based community. And, and those experiments have, have been across the board largely challenged, or if not unsuccessful. And so listening to the community, we felt that uh, a lot of the young families, especially the young families, we're in a community that where 80% of our young families are interfaith marriages. You've got uh, two adults journeying through life from different uh, faith uh, traditions or maybe no faith traditions. Who knows? But there's a connection. The young families that we were meeting were very interested in values around the environment, around the food system, around social justice, around early childhood healthy development, around the critical needs of our planet. We saw this group as sort of traipsing right through the middle of a community farm. What a venue one could have. If you could imagine having a place where families like that could gather for all kinds of reasons. You know, farms grow people. People don't grow farms. It's, it's their places that so much in our tradition happened. Rabbi Landis from, from Jerusalem was here a few weeks ago, and he was talking about this notion that after the destruction of the Second Temple, Judaism sort of moved onto the farm. And you think about the thousands of years that this farming tradition was embedded in Jewish life and all the things that came from it. A part, part of our calculus was, frankly, if we could have a community farm where we had adult volunteers from the community supporting the efforts to help vulnerable communities. And our children were watching us as we did that. Those children would grow up to be different kinds of citizens. They would listen to these conversations and see these things happening. And those actions would, would hopefully be interpreted in their lives to mean something about their service to our world. This is really like creating a place, right? Taking, moving away from the idea of a city, but to create a place where there's a sense of connection among the people that crosses over not only space, but over time, over the generations, and really building in opportunities for the elders to model what justice and what kindness and what connection looks like. Even in our farm stand pricing, we think about this very intentionally. We grow the most expensive produce that's available in the county of San Diego. Unless you grow your own at home, which is likely spending more than we do. It's very, very ex expensive because what we're doing is we're selling the produce at a price modeling a 40-hour work week for the farmer. Uh, under state law and, and federal law, you can work uh, a person 60 hours on a farm before you have to pay them overtime. That's 12 hours a day, five days a week. That's a long right. day. Well, those are farming regulations. So we uh, model a 40-hour work week. We don't farm on Shabbos. It's the farm is clo closed on Shabbos. We are active on Sundays with Farm Day and Farm Stand Day and a lot of programming. And we're closed on Friday. Farmers are given a, a normal week. We've been able to figure out how to manage that. We sell at a price representing a livable wage. 
the minimum now is $19 on the farm, and they get a retirement benefit and a, a medical benefit. And that makes for a very expensive produce, and you pay what you can. But at some point in time, I think we have to come to grips that sort of with the notion that our food system, you know, it's like a Wendell Berry will tell you, sort of he, he is attributed with the, the idea that, and that eating is an agricultural act. In a sense, we're all farming. When we open our mouths and consume some, we're deciding what farmer ultimately is going to grow and how it's going to get to us. That's the kind of intentionality we give to a food system that is so challenged around its, around its fairness and equity. The model that's being implemented here is not only about creating opportunities to serve those in need, it's really building in the infrastructure of justice, of fair wages, of dignity at all levels of society, that the farm stand has pay what you can. It is supporting Holocaust survivors. It is supporting the immigrant community and those in need financially. What I find to be interesting is that there is such a need in the military base, in the military community. These are employees of the United States of America, and they have food insecurity. How does it work exactly? Yeah, it's a problem that very candidly we've been noticing. We learned a lot about it in 2008 when the world was falling off a financial cliff. In 2008, when we were making grants exclusively, one of the things we were noticing is the 30% across the board deficits in organizations that were serving the community, a vulnerable community. At that time, we undertook a study of the needs of military families in this region, which had never been done before, shockingly enough, we learned. The number of young military families that were having to choose between basic needs and the extreme pressures that were being brought to bear on their lifestyles. So it's still a challenge, it continues to be challenging. And I've shared with you how I see the difference between how we treat the young military families in America. And at least at at one point in time, how I saw Israel treating its young military enlistees in their system. One system, Israel's system, is a country that has a system that reflects this best nation-building tradition of the state of Israel, in my opinion. And, and in America, we have so many kids, it doesn't matter. We try to get the kids that'll fit the volunteer needs of the army. And if they're married, they're married, but it's not the problem of the military. The military is running wars. And now I think our attitudes in America have evolved better than they were even in 2008. And I do believe the military is doing better. But we have a long way to go. No doubt about it. These are very, very troubling times and and for a lot of families. So the vulnerable population is being enticed to join the military. Military housing in America is inadequate for the need. Housing is such a problem across the globe right now, and it's not going to get any better anytime soon. And the nomadic populations that are growing out of the housing deficiencies are something our planet is having to adjust to. We call them climate refugees or immigrants or asylum seekers or who knows. But it's a group, a huge group of nomads across the globe and every community is going to get their share. You're essentially, in running a private foundation, you are making connections with people at, in all different corners of society. And it sounds like the program with the military is very meaningful. It sounds like there's progress and that the foundation, the Leech Tech Foundation, is really a model in, in serving those who serve. Now, in terms of the nomadic population and this housing crisis that you bring up, I'm curious to understand, in your foundation work, do you feel like you have a certain radar for 
the problems of society, the needs in society? Well, it's such a privilege to wake up every day and be able to read the newspaper differently. Where you're able to read an article about a problem in your community and ask yourself, gee, what can I realistically do about this situation? How can I help? And uh, we have this incredible privilege of being able to respond in urgent ways to urgent needs. And, and I think we do so in a way that really reflects the, the best ideas of our philanthropic The least tanks were people that invested in talented professionals. And that's what we do here. We have a place that serves as their laboratory, but the talented professionals that populate our environment that are out of us, this money in ways that really matter and that make sense is is the high one of the highest privileges to participate in that is one of the highest privileges I can imagine for one's life. It's a way of activating your values. We haven't even talked about an adjacency to the farm. Coastal Woods Farm is an incubator, the incubator of the Beach State Foundation we call the Hive. The Hive is co-working space for the nonprofit community. It's a, a, about a 20,000, 18,000 foot barn, old barn that was built and actually in the production of poinsettias at one point in time, that has now been purposed today uh, as an operational co-working space in which 45 organizations, Jewish and secular organizations, that are all committed sort of in some form or fashion to sustainable community development show up every day to work. So we have a community makerspace, this idea that you have these social creatives that are going to the depths and edges of our culture in order to create something more relevant to our lives around a deficiency. We'll have a, an event in an open field for with con content about content that matters to these young lives and we'll get hundreds of people on a, a rainy day that connect to the program. I think you're bringing up really two interesting models for creating community and creating sustainable, meaningful, purpose-oriented community. So the first thing that you mentioned was this idea of a hive. So there are 45 organizations working in essentially what is a co-working space and prior to their working together, these are organizations that were really dispersed. I think there's a lot of that you can learn that that will help inform how other communities look at this. I think co-working space can work in any and should work in every community. We have we have supported co-working space here in Sanitas on this property. We've also been a major contributor to the effort in Jerusalem at Reese Street. So the Reese Street is very focused on the work of civil society in Jerusalem. You can't go there and be a lawyer and rent a desk unless you're involved. I mean, you've got to be involved in the work of civil society to use that facility. So that's what happens. Uh -huh. So the Humanists at, at Jerusalem Botanical Garden, which is a, also a project that we have supported, that's their, that hive was, that hub was inspired in part by the folks that organized it were inspired in part by the hive here. They see that as a hub space for environmental organizations to have a common thread around things that can happen in the public garden. So that's a really interesting focus for that idea. So communities can have more than one of these and neighborhoods, in fact, or greater neighborhoods or, you know, villages, if you will, need these. This is one of the ideas that I think can serve to help and support uh, a vibrant community. When an interfaith family shows up here to an organ to an event, which has some interesting and, and important uh, Jewish content, a Tubishvat program, somehow that is connecting deeply enough with families here so that on a rainy day you get several hundred people which we did a couple of weeks ago on two and a half acres because i think 
I wouldn't want anybody to think you can't have in any community a really important community farm. You can have that on an acre of land or two acres of land. You do not need the kind of platform that we enjoy here in Encinitas. But I will say that seeing that you could effectively accommodate 1250 people at Sukkot which we're told by our we're told by our colleagues in the field across North America that this is the largest observance of this has been year in and year out for the last 7 years the largest Sukkot uh, observance in North America I, I refer to it actually as the a festival of low hanging fruit because if you can't create joy on Sukkot you should be out of the business uh, <laughs> And uh, it was so much fun. Think about our Shemitah, which is every seven years, as you know, in Judaism, we let the land lie fallow. We give the land a rest. It's, our, it's, the, it's the Sabbath for the land. It's the rest for the land, the sabbatical year. And every seven cycles, by the way, what an amazing thing. You have a piece of ground in your community, and you go, well, well, even though we're not Eretz Yisrael, we say, if we were, this piece of the way this piece of land would look. You're not going to farm it this year. This is what Shemitah meant to the land. We understood what a naturalizing a crop would mean in a Shemitah year. We understood what we could do to, to gather food for a meal. We couldn't harvest, but we could forage. And everybody was entitled, all the gates came down, everybody's entitled to forage for a meal on any day. And to the extent that the, God produces the food in the field. And, and then also what happens in the Shemitah, all debts were forgiven. So the tide for all boats rises. So imagine that. In the tradition, you couldn't amass a fortune in real estate. You couldn't be a real estate mogul in Judaism because the tribes own the land communally. I think in the uh, community that we're in, where we see a competitive advantage in serving a community that's so richly diverse, including these young families that are taking Judaism public through deep relations between Jews and non-Jews, that to me is a awesome opportunity for doing something important for a long time that can matter to our culture. Beautiful initiative, so much going on and really so much to cover. Let's talk about the parking lot because one of the most uh, interesting things that's happened to us in a while, frankly, is the safe parking program that has now been implemented and is now in place at Leachtag Commons. And I encourage everybody to take a look at Leachtag Commons on the website. But the Safe Parking Program is a program that's funded by uh, the state of California through a fund that supports a crisis management for the homeless. The face of the homeless is as diverse as there are, is diverse in its complexity as there are numbers of homeless people. Everybody's got a different story. Everybody arrived to the street differently. And there's a small slice of folks that are on the edge, that have been evicted from where they live, had to give up their homes, their apartments, the rooms they were renting, the couches they were staying on, the friends' homes and garages they were living in. And they've ended up in their car. They typically work in the community. They've lived in the community. They may work or go to school in the community. And they're living out of their car. Many of them don't consider themselves homeless. They simply think they're living in their car. And they're part of a much broader sort of nomadic population. We live in a society where there are way too many people that are at war against poor people. These are folks that come out of our families. There are sons, our daughters, our grandchildren. There are mothers. We had a woman, one of the first women that was served 
in this lot here was a woman that is of the community. She has adult children living in the community, in home, and she lost her apartment. She has a job. She makes a, a living. She didn't have the cash to turn around and go pay first months and, and last months on a new place to live. And she didn't want her children to know. She doesn't want to be a burden. And the program run here is a, a grant that is funding, funded through the, through, the, through the state to Jewish Family Service on a piece of land that we lease to the city for a dollar. And the city uses that property under its crisis management authority mandated by state law to provide space for this program to occur. We are 67 and a half acres with over a million feet of greenhouse space with 11 agricultural tenants with hundreds of parking spaces, none of which are used at night. This, this is 25 spaces for folks. They show up at anywhere between 6 and 9.30 at night. They can't come in later than 9.30. And they clear out by 7 in the morning. They have a safe place to park. We have security. We are a Jewish site. And, was a hard, and we were a, hard, are a hardened site as a result of grants received from the Department of Homeland Security to make our place server, safer for Jews to use. What a wonderful way to leverage public support that create greater security for this program. And frankly, given the folks that are using the program, we're not at risk from the folks that are using the program. I, as I said to everybody around here, these are simply folks that are a nighttime shift. We can rely on them to keep this place safer at night. I'm delighted that they're here. It's not convenient in every respect, but homelessness isn't convenient for everybody, anybody, especially though the folks that don't have a stable place to live. Just to think that the majority of Americans are a few paychecks away from living on the street. And here you have these people who are hardworking people who run into bad luck and they are in their cars. And think about someone having to pull over the side of the road and worry about being detained by the police for parking illegally or having to worry about their basic safety or any number of concerns. Or How does somebody sleep? sleep? Or, or How does, do you even or, sleep? Or, or, or excuse sleep? me. How do you perform your bodily functions? Where do you go to the bathroom for grant? Where do you take a meal? And you have to worry about who's going to pass. And you go show up at your job the next morning. All because, by the way, we live in communities that weren't sensitive to the idea of creating multi-generational communities where the young who don't have the money that the old folks have can afford to live where they serve the communities they work in. We haven't done that. And this is the price. But this is a very small part of the problem. I just said to everybody, when the mayor called and asked if we would be interested, if, if we would be amenable, I just responded that for a private foundation that has the footprint that we have in a city this size, 30% of the philanthropy that we have distributed in the last dozen years has been distributed to nonprofits here in the city. And we are a public benefit corporation under state law. It would be um, a philanthropic malpractice for us not to consider how, as a corporate citizen, we could support the municipality we live in to help manage the crisis they're dealing with in terms of serving the homeless population. And it's not serving just the homeless population. You're helping everybody in the society because the homeless problem is coming into everybody's homes. We are all so interconnected. We are also interconnected. So this sounds like a really tremendous program. It sounds like a win-win. Also think about it from one other perspective that I think is so essential for uh, organizations like ours. Typically, you think about branding and, and marketing. You know, we are in a position where 
I, I, I think I'm the head cheerleader and need to be sort of the primary referee for keeping the organizations within the boundaries of a philanthropic legacy that is important and honors the Leach Tech family. That's quintessentially my role here. Oftentimes, we have to pay to tell people who we are and what we're trying to be. You know, when we do a website, we had professionals, and it was not done inexpensively, to spend time and effort to make it uh, truly reflect with honor who we're here representing. And, and I would just say that rarely do we have a chance for nothing to do something so important. We had this incredible opportunity to articulate to the, our, our community who we are, who we need to be, who we're trying to be as an organization and the talent and the, and the, and the professionals that serve it. That's such an important opportunity. And I think people don't like it. Some neighbors, we had a, it's a horrendous problem in everything from people with very legitimate fears and concerns because they don't know much about this stuff to people who just don't want any, us to do anything because they're NIMBYs to people who frankly uh, don't like Jews. And there's a handful of those out there too. There always are, by the way. That's nothing to, new to us. But so suffice to say that we got to do here what we need to do to be the organization that honors the Leach Sag family. I'm so delighted. So that's how I look at this whole mm -hmm. thing. Tremendous opportunity to give to the community. Yeah. And it sounds like as much as the foundation's doing this crisis management in conjunction with organizations and in conjunction with the state, there's really a larger lesson to take away in terms of community building, as you said, in a way that will provide sustainability long-term intergenerationally to avoid problems such as these in the future. How do we avoid, the, how do we avoid homelessness? Uh, you know, the core problem, lack of affordable places to live. Earlier, you were referring to the standard that 70% of Americans can't afford to sustain a $400 problem. They go under. They can't, uh, if their car breaks, they can't repair. If they can't, they don't have the last 400 to put on their rent. 70% of Americans are $400 yes. away from a crisis. And what the program is, the 25-person uh, lo uh, lot here, you can't get in unless you, one, have a car that is operational, and you have to insure it. And here you can't smoke because we, we can't have nicotine on our property because we have too many growers that grow things that would be prejudiced by that chemical. So you can't be a smoker. You obviously can't uh, use drugs or, or you've got to be able to drive your car in and out and it's got to be insured. And you've got to be motivated to stabilize. And Family Service operates the program. We don't operate the program. We just host it. They operate the program and they help these people connect with services they can utilize to stabilize their life. And sometimes it takes several months to get people into more stable environments. But if you weren't doing this, those people would likely at some point end up on the street. And if they end up on the street, it's very difficult to come back from the street. You don't come back home when it happens. And there's lots of evidence to that effect. So this is a small modest effort. I hope people notice it because, you know, if my view is we need to look at our communities as villages. Santa Barbara's had a program, uh, a parking uh, lot program going in their community for about 10 years now. It hasn't, it hasn't been easy, but they are now at a point where I think their website says they serve 135 cars in 23 different lots. And my view in a community is these lots need to be decentralized where people work and where they uh, live. I was asked by a, a vendor here, a, a company we do work for, and, and, and they sell modular units. They build and sell modular units. 
and they have large factories. And I said to the guy, and he said, oh, we just love the fact that you guys are doing this safe work. And I said, well, that's interesting. I said, where, where do you work? He told me this company. I said, well, how many people work? Well, we have 14,000 people in our country. We have a bunch of plants across. I said, how many of your workers live in their cars? And the guy stopped and he said, oh, that's. And if you knew that, wouldn't you want them to park on your lot? They'll take care of your place at night, buddy. He hadn't even thought of that. We can solve some of this problem. We just need to be more compassionate in our approach. We need to find a way to live in a kinder, kinder, gentler place so our children can see what that behavior looks like. So when they grow up, they will live in a kinder, gentler uh, world. It's interesting. It's interesting to think about the, the knowledge gap where we have the CEO of a company with 14,000 employees, and he doesn't know who lives in a car. Why? Because living in a car is, is, carries this great stigma. There's so much stigma with being poor and so much stigma with being troubled or being disadvantaged or being vulnerable in any way. And, you know, I really Different. look at this as an awareness issue. This is about awareness and uh, human connection and really getting to know each other coming from our corners and convening and creating real communities. It's been enlightening to hear about your work and the work of your foundation today. And I know that our listeners are going to walk away changed and inspired really to create community and, and open their hearts. So I want to thank you so much. Hey, thank you so much for talking to me. I want to encourage anybody that's listening to wants to do a deeper dive. You can easily find out more at uh, coastalrootsfarm.org. So the links to the website are in the show notes. That's coastalrootsfarm.org or leechtag.org. L-E-I-C-H-T-A-G dot O-R-G. And now... As promised, I'm going to go ahead and cue you in on how I'm connected to today's guest, Mr. Jim Farley. How much fun this is for a parent (laughs) to be interviewed by their child who is a professional in their field and who speaks wisdom to many people. And so beyond the incredible joy that brings a parent, it's just a privilege to be able to share our work together. I'm so, so happy to have you here. And I'm going to save that part for the end because it's going to be a surprise how we're related. How awesome was that? What a place. You can visit the website. I'm going to have all of the info in the show notes. And they do tours of the site, which are incredible. And they also have their farm stand on Thursdays. So if you are anywhere in the San Diego area, or if you're thinking of visiting the San Diego area, I highly recommend checking out this special, special place. So as promised, I want to share a few of the acts of kindness that came across my desk over the past week. First of all, there was a shortage of health care supplies here in Israel, a shortage of masks in particular, and I know this has been happening in a lot of different locations. And so it was so inspiring to see on Facebook, businesswoman Miriam Lautner really came to the rescue. Miriam Lautner is the CEO and founder of Reveal Cards, Curious, that's Curious with a Q, and Monster X. So she is the owner of these incredibly educational game companies. And she used her connections to find surgical masks when none were available so it has been incredible to watch she's orchestrated the deliveries and there are all these volunteers helping and people are donating money and so I came across the donation it was all in shekels which is the currency here in Israel but I wanted to share that there is also a link to donate to this cause 
and you can donate to this cause if you're interested in supporting what she's doing at masksforisrael at gmail.com. So they're not the sponsors of the show. I don't gain anything from sharing this with you. I just wanted you to know in case you're interested in helping out. Again, that's masksforisrael at gmail.com and they will give you a link to donate whether it's in Israel and you have shekels or you're outside of Israel and you want to help. Another act of kindness from listener Donna Williams. She shared that her dear daughter is picking up all of her necessities because she is unable to leave the house. Donna was so grateful and it is such a beautiful example of how we can all help each other and how seemingly little acts can make really incredible ripples and make such a difference in the lives of others. I want to share a few more acts of kindness. Something that I came across that this past week was a Facebook friend of mine named Kim Smiley was also organizing mask donations, but these ones in Toronto. And she was also featured on their local news station in Toronto because she has a Facebook page called The Empathy Effect. And she highlighted healthcare workers on the page and all of the members of the page could share whoever had been helping them, whoever they wanted to nominate, whoever they wanted to highlight for their service at this time. And when I was watching that segment, it was really touching and there was another member of the Toronto community highlighted for starting an initiative where she was lighting candles in her front window as a symbol of connectedness, even in a time of physical distance. And as I was watching this, I I teared up so much and I didn't know why at the time, but now as I'm reflecting on it, I'm realizing that this is a symbol of our connectedness. And it's also a symbol of how when we light candles, we dispel darkness We don't need to fight darkness. All we have to do is shine lights, spread lights. And you know, one candle can light up this universe. It can kindle another and another and send infinite ripples out into the universe. And that's the power of kindness. So what kindness does. Another act of kindness came from our listener, Hani, who shared that There was a regulation passed that everyone needed to wear masks and she couldn't find a mask. As she began looking for a mask, trying to figure out the situation, she came across her friend, Tracy Merkin-Littman, who normally designs purses and bags, but was now making face masks and she was able to get a face mask from Tracy. So I thought that was really awesome how People are pivoting and they're using their resources to be helpful right now. Tracy has this really cool bag company on Facebook. It's Tracy Littman Collection and they're so colorful and they look so practical and it was just really neat to see the way that Tracy used her creativity to rise to the occasion. This has been so wonderful and I'm so happy that you're here to join me. I want to share more acts of kindness. I want to hear from you. So please, please share with me. You can find me on Facebook, Within Us Podcast with Azriela Jankovic. You can hop on over there and you can share your act of kindness this way. Or you can always visit my website. That's probably the easiest thing. Just go to drozzy.co and I'm going to have all of this information on my website as well you can hop on over to podcasts and you'll see links to listen you'll see all this information you'll see the links to donate and tracy's project and everything else and i'm also going to leave a heart-centered meditation on my website under podcast for you it's my special gift to you after this episode And I'm going to explain in the meditation what the power of a heart-centered, a heart-coherence meditation is. And then you're going to go ahead and get to experience it. And what's so incredible about these heart-coherence meditations is that they have the capacity to shift us out of stress and into creativity and vision and even boost our intelligence. The science of this short practice is just mind-boggling it's so incredible 
So visit my website, drozzy.co and podcasts, and you can grab that meditation. Thank you so much for joining me today. And as always, abundant blessings. And I will see you next week. We have got so much in store. We have some more incredible guests coming up. And I just, I feel so grateful. I get contacted all the time by people with all kinds of transformational tools doing wonderful things in the world. And I'm really excited that you're here to share this journey with me. I'll see you next time.